0: Sometimes we have to say no, and sometimes we have to think about, like, a society that cares about people is also one that gives us time off.
1: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Okay, I'll try now. Hey, Sarah Jaffe, how are you
0: doing? Hi, hello, everyone.
1: Hello, everyone out there. So excited to be doing this. This is awesome. Sarah, I think you are a generationally important reporter. And so I really do appreciate the ability to interrogate you on your latest (laughs) tome, which which I enjoyed greatly. Um, The book is Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. So Sarah, You know, you you have this very broad um, area of work in which you ply your trade. Why out of all possible topics did you decide to write about this?
0: I mean, it's my life. (laughs) I kind of spend so much of my time um, working and then thinking like I work too damn much. I need to stop working. And this was true. You know, I, I've, before I was a journalist full-time, I was in, in various jobs in retail and food service and all of that stuff. And like, I, when I finally finished journalism school, got a job in this benighted industry, um, my working conditions kind of hadn't changed that much. And that was like, a wake up call, I guess, that made me start thinking about this stuff that like, the idea of loving your job might actually have more in it for your boss than it does for you.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, just for everybody listening, you know, that I may or may not know that I'm a sports writer. We are going to get to talk in sports with Sarah Jaffe. Yeah. I mean, there actually there's a whole chapter on sports in the book. We are going to talk about that. Um, hopefully it'll spawn uh, Sarah getting her dream fulfilled of a job on sports radio.
0: Um, (laughs) You know, I actually applied for an internship at USA hockey magazine um, when I was 23 and I did not get it because they gave it to a dude who played college hockey. Oh man. I know. Right. Sexism lives. Wow. (laughs)
1: Now that's, we're going to, we're going to get there. I'm telling you, we're going to talk about that. Um, yeah, you know, Sarah, I sent you um an article earlier today that was a nineteen eighty-one expose from I think like the Tampa Bay Times of a word that's not exactly in vogue these days, and that's workaholism or being a workaholic. <laughs> they were talking about it as if it was, you know, something that you need to fight to avoid, that it was bad for you. <laughs> I want to ask you, that was 1981. I want to ask you. Why and how have we changed so much since 1981 from workaholism to passion and all the things you describe in your book?
0: The article is like, how parents can spot a future workaholic plus a self-test on workaholism. <laughs> this year I have it pulled up, of course, on my desktop because I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> a number of journalists could have been handed this assignment. We all know journalists have a high number of workaholics in their ranks. Uh, it's so amazing because it's like literally all of this stuff that they're they're listing off as these traits of being a workaholic are now just like what you're supposed to say about yourself at a job interview you know, when they do that thing where they're like, Oh, so what's your biggest flaw? And you're just like, I just, I just love my job so much that that's my biggest flaw. Um, I, I find this so fascinating. Of course, this is 1981, right? This is the year that Ronald Reagan broke the air traffic controllers union. Um, so much has changed that has a lot to do with Ronald Reagan breaking that air traffic controllers union. And the, the, you know, the shift from the sort of industrial era work ethic of, you know, you go to your job, you get paid. As this article says, it's something like, um, where is it? 95% of the adult population will quickly admit they work only to live. The other 5%, those who live to work are workaholics. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, because that's like the holdover of like, yeah, when you go to work in the factory or whatever, then nobody expects you to like it although these days apparently they do and the shift in all of this right the breaking of union power like Reagan and the air traffic controllers um the deindustrialization the rise of the service sector the caring sector um as much more predominant forms of work like all of this has totally scrambled how we think about work in the trade-off that we've essentially been given in exchange for, like, busting the unions, getting rid of the stable jobs, and bringing in, you know, the gig economy and contingent work in a variety of of places and and ways is that we're supposed to like it now. Work is cool. You can maybe be your own boss and, like, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And all of this garbage is essentially, like, the trade-off that we get for giving up security and apparently giving up the idea that like working all the damn time was maybe a bad thing. Mm. Yeah.
1: What industries that you see right now um, are particularly susceptible to, I guess we could call it um, emotional class manipulation Mm -hmm. of your, you know, of, uh, of your work ethic, basically.
0: Yeah, I mean, so in in the book, I trace this to sort of um, two places. And one is the way we talk about women's unpaid work in the home. And the other is the way we talked about sort of artists as as unique, special, magical geniuses. And this connects up to the sports question, which we'll get to. Mm. But like, so the one that I'm thinking about the most these days, though, is teachers. Right. Because every newspaper in the country, I think, has written at least has run at least one op ed and probably an editorial board, you know, actual opinion piece and all of these other things about how the teachers need to just get back in the classroom and it's safe and follow the science often like running, like literally right next to an article about how, um, COVID cases are up, especially among younger adults. And like, I was literally reading both of these things in the Chicago Tribune this morning. So I'm, I'm freshly thinking about this and like, So this round of blaming teachers like kids are going to fall behind if they're learning remotely and they need to get back in the classroom and it's safe. The CDC says it's safe. The CDC, which is changing its regulations based on, you know, the political pressure because Biden wants all the schools open in his first hundred days, even as again, COVID numbers are back up because it turns out when you reopen restaurants for indoor dining, infection numbers go up. I know you all are very shocked. So. Blaming teachers, though, has a really long history, and it's really gendered, right? And I love the way that Megan Erickson wrote about this in her book, Class War, where she talks about the failure of teachers being like the failure of mothers. It makes you not just like bad at your job, but like a bad person. And this kind of, like you said, like emotional class manipulation, um, is used so intensely. Like, don't you care about the kids? And if you cared about the kids, you basically won't care if you die a lingering, horrible death of COVID-19, as long as your kids test scores get back up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And like, you know, it's the same story we've been hearing about the way people have talked about teachers for the last several decades. And, you know, recently teachers unions have actually been doing a good job of pushing back on that. Um, John and I were talking before we turned this up. The last time I did a a Haymarket Books event was with uh, Stacey Davis Gates of the Chicago Teachers Union and Sarah Nelson of the Flight Attendance Union. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I talked to Stacey for a story not that long ago, and she was saying, like, I've never seen a school that could make up for systemic failures of government, but they expect us to do it every time. Mm
1: -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I was just, I mean, I was just hoping you could build on that, because I wanted to ask you, um, how teachers ideologically combat that yeah. like, while retaining their solidarity and their union power.
0: Yeah, I had so much fun because I write about teachers and their labor a lot. This is obviously um, a major part of, of militancy in the labor movement in the last 10 years has been led by teachers. But I did some history reading that I hadn't read before when working on this book, and I found like so many times over the course of the last 100 years of teachers' unions in America – that over and over they find a few of the same things work. And that is organizing in the community as well as in the union, organizing alongside parents and students, organizing alongside like working class issues Mm -hmm. and around racial justice. So Mm -hmm. like the early Chicago teachers, um, well before collective bargaining, were doing things like researching who wasn't paying their taxes in the city in order to find the funding for the schools. Um, The Communist Teachers Union in New York City, just called the Teachers Union, was doing things like writing culturally relevant curricula for their students of color in the 1930s and 1940s, like well before the thing we call ethnic studies. And they were getting red baited out of the schools for it. But, you know, We'll leave that alone. Um, So over and over again, the things that they find that work are the same things that like the Chicago teachers, the Los Angeles teachers, the Massachusetts teachers, the West Virginia teachers that are are leading the labor movement now have been doing. And that's like working with their students and their students, parents, identifying all the places that like the vast, as Stacey said, like the the Failures of government that are screwing up people's lives so that in the last um, contract fight, the Chicago teachers were bargaining around getting funding for homeless students and insisting that that was something they could bring to the bargaining table. Um, The Los Angeles teachers were bargaining around um, green space around the school. So kids could actually have places to go outside and play. They also tried to bring housing demands because of the school owned property that they were saying you should use to build affordable housing. Um, This kind of thing that, that, you know, they've bargained around restorative justice um, certainly ethnic studies, curricula and other um, you know, language programs, all of these things that are demands that like their students and their parents brought to them. And that, you know, it, it renders sort of useless this idea that like these teachers don't care about the kids when the kids are on the picket lines with them. Yeah. You know, you can't win over the kids by being like, Oh, your teacher doesn't care about you. And they're like, yeah, she does. She brings me food every week, you know?
1: So, so I just want, I want to make sure I get the, uh, the argument, right. What you're saying is so the tradition of teachers existing in this social justice community space, that's, um, that's anti. That's explicitly anti-racist. This yeah, goes yeah. back da- um, damn near a hundred years. Yeah. But the counter by the bosses of hyper-emotional manipulation—that's okay. a relatively new construct.
0: Well, that that also goes back pretty far. But but it's it's like I said, it's interesting the way that like the things that have worked to counter that, because like from the beginning of public schools in this country. Um, people hired women to be teachers explicitly because they could pay them less and they could naturalize it by saying that women are naturally good at taking care of kids and therefore they're naturally good at being teachers and they care about the kids. And that's really all teaching is anyway. Um, and we're seeing that now, right. In the way that like everybody's freaking out about like needing the school buildings to be open again, while teachers are, are, you know, making themselves crazy trying to, like, make teaching virtually engaging and exciting. And I've talked to teachers who are like, yeah, I have wigs and costumes, like we're doing virtual field trips. You know, they've been working so hard to make teaching virtually worthwhile. But everybody just cares about getting the school buildings open because it's actually the thing that they care about the most is making sure that all the parents can go to work. Mm -hmm. And they don't actually at all value, like, the learning that kids are doing. Mm-hmm. And it's like that's the most frustrating thing, I think, in so many ways. It's like this demand to reopen schools. They're trying to couch it in this language of concern for the kids like, oh, kids are falling behind. Oh, kids are depressed. And it's like, yeah, kids are depressed because we're in a global pandemic and everybody's dying. Mm. That's why we're all depressed. It kids sounds depressed. like it's depressing.
1: It sounds like in your own mind, there's been this uh, intellectual collision between the years of work you put into this book and then the covid crisis.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, so I I finished writing this book.
1: Yeah, how it amplifies the themes in the book so dramatically.
0: Yeah, I finished writing the book last February. And I was in London for a month and I flew back to the US and basically just straight into lockdown. And so, you know, two months later when I get my edits back from my editor, I am like making phone calls to all the people that I profiled in the book to talk to them about like how their work life has changed because of COVID and, you know, finding out everything from like um, Adela, who's the nanny that I profile my chapter on domestic work. Um, She's moved in with the family that she cares for. So Monday through Friday, she's spending all of her time with the family that pays her rather than her own kids who are virtual schooling. Um, and she's stressed out about that, worrying, you know, that her kids aren't getting their schoolwork done cause she's not there to help, but she also needs to get paid. And this is the only, the sort of safest way they can do that with minimizing her travel, um, to like video game programmers who are, who are, you know, I talked to Kevin and he's just like, yeah, my flatmate moved out. Um, early on. So I just like turned that extra room into my office. So now I just sort of roll out of bed and go into the next room. And then sometimes it's two in the afternoon and I realize I haven't eaten anything all day. Um, it was like, everybody's work life had gotten worse. It was just a, a variety of interesting ways of how they had gotten worse.
1: So I'm so anxious to start talking sports with Sarah, That's
0: fine. but
1: <laughs> you mentioned a video game a uh, programmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to ask how, how does what you described with teachers, you know, the, the, the emotional manipulation, the, you know, the, the method by which to discipline them as a workforce, how does that apply to a quote unquote non-caring industry like a video programmer?
0: So this is where, as we are being hosted by Haymarket Books tonight, I'm going to plug an awesome Haymarket Books book, Marks at the Arcade by Jamie Woodcock, which is about the video games industry Um, and also kind of a really good primer on marks, I think, um, for people who are like, how do I get into reading capital? You could do it while reading about video games. Um, so the games industry, and I wrote about this in England because they actually founded one of the first, um, unions for video games, workers or a branch of the independent workers of great Britain. And the thing that I found really interesting is like, I expected sort of all of this, like you can like bring your toys to work and play games while at work and we'll like make you dinner and all of these things. Like I knew that that was a thing in tech, but I was really shocked at how heavy the emotional, like we're all a family thing was at play with the, the games workers too. Interesting. So, um, if you read like the websites of some of these games companies, the one that, um, that Kevin work Kevin, who's the worker that I profiled, not chapter works for, um, describes itself as, as, you know, we, we believe that, you know, in order to make fun games, we have to have fun while we're making games. That's why we have a home cooked meal every week. And it's like, it's not a home cooked meal. It's a work cooked meal you're not at home. Um, and then this other company literally like describes itself as a fampony, which is just, yeah, everybody sort of pauses on that one. It's just like, what? Um, yeah. And these are games companies. In some cases, these are like big international games companies where you're literally working with people around the world, but but it's the family. And, you know, games is also just notorious for having mass layoffs. There's actually a website that's sort of like, has, you know, how many days has it been since the last mass layoffs in games? Um, So, you know, Kevin joked about like, yeah, maybe I moved halfway across the country to take this new job. And then I've been laid off right after you told me I joined the family. Um, So, yeah, like the family... I mean, I, I started the book with women's unpaid work in the home because I knew the family was going to play into this really intensely. But even I was sort of stunned at how much it was at play, even in tech.
1: Yeah, I got to say, Fampany sounds like a parody of someone writing a dystopian novel. <laughs> like someone who read Orwell too many times and I know, right? Thought it made them. <laughs>
0: yeah. Or yeah.
1: Or it's just, that. That's wild. The
0: first. The wow. worst.
1: Okay, so yeah. you've got you've got a chapter in the book. It's called, It's All Fun and Games, Sports. Yep. Why take on sports at all in this matrix that you've set up, in this analysis? In fact, most people would say, hey, sports, isn't that just millionaires getting paid for playing a game? Isn't that the ultimate privileged form of work? <laughs> how, how does, why... Did you say, I need to have sports in this book?
0: I mean, that's exactly why, right? Because people do say like, oh, well, you're lucky to have this job. Except they also say that to computer programmers. They even say that to teachers. They say that to so many people whenever they make any demands for themselves. So I actually like thought that taking it on was a really good way to do it. Also, because like, sports is such a good place to talk about like race and gender and work and like our expectations of the physical body at work. Um, and because I'm obsessed with Colin Kaepernick and Marshawn Lynch, so that's also a thing. And Megan Rapinoe and the U S women's soccer team. And of course the people that I end up you know, profiling in this was the um, women's U.S. women's hockey team mm-hmm. because they had done all sorts of organizing around saying that they're workers and saying that they ought to be paid like workers and not be expected to do it for the love of the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, the women's soccer players have been doing this. Kaepernick has been, you know, like I, I think sometimes we don't talk enough about Kaepernick's prob his whole struggle as like a labor struggle. Um You know, and my obsession with Marshawn Lynch is um, I'm just here so I don't get fined, which I actually have a T-shirt somewhere around here. I bought the T-shirt from him because, of course, he made a T-shirt because, of course, he did Um, as a work to rule action. Right. Where he was like, OK, you can make me show up, but you can't actually like compel me to talk and perform and smile and all of this. And it was like literally a work to rule action against doing emotional labor. And I just I love it. I he was like, no, not going to do it.
1: Amazing. I've never thought of it that way. What you're talking about also makes me think of um, when Cal Ripken Jr. uh, broke... Lou Gehrig's record for consecutive games played and he really wasn't very good for the last 500 to a thousand of those games yeah but he was being praised in the press as if he was god on the throne and I remember a, a labor friend of mine saying they love him because he's a neoliberal's wet dream was how he <laughs> described it the yeah. worker who never gets sick
0: yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's so much of it that I have a hockey argument around the worker who never gets sick too, which is why we all love Wayne Gretzky. Um, because Mario Lemieux was actually better, but Mario Lemieux had cancer, um, in the middle of his career, came back, continued playing and had a higher points per game average than Gretzky before he got sick. So that is my story. Mario Lemieux is better than Wayne Gretzky. Wow. I have to do this cause I've got Dave here. <laughs> um, and like, no <laughs> yeah, but that, that whole idea, right. That like, the person who is like the most sort of remarkable star is just the person who just keeps grinding and like, it is literally so grinding and, and, you know, baseball, we don't think of maybe as, as much as um, football or hockey, even as, as like physically debilitating, but like, my God, You know, all of this stuff breaks your body down in in a variety of ways that, you know, we're only starting to sort of finally talk about, like, traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, like and the thing that I'm also stuck on, and this is something that Malcolm Harris's book, um, Kids These Days, made me think about, which is that, like, to get that good, you have to actually start working really, really hard when you're a kid. So, like, essentially, there's sort of like inbuilt child labor in every athlete who makes it to an elite level. Um, you know, and this is obvious in sports like gymnastics where you see like these women who are are very young, um, who are, you know, the best in the world, who, you know, when they're like 14, 15, 16 years old. But it's also true of somebody, you know, of I dare we mention Tom Brady. I mean, we'll smack talk Tom Brady later, but like even to get to be Tom Brady, Tom Brady had to work real hard when he was like ten mm-hmm. to get to the point of being, you know, however old he is. He's my age, I think. He's like forty, right? Uh, older, uh, forty-three. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. So, I mean, he's. I also kind of think Tom Brady's a devil robot, so maybe he's not even human.
1: Well, we'll we'll get to the um satanic roboticness of uh, Brady in a moment. <laughs> Our
0: least favorite person.
1: Yeah, not 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 a fave of mine for sure. Yeah, but, but it's it's interesting, like like about. Integrating sports into this um argument is really interesting, particularly women's sports. I mean, depends Mm -hmm. on a great deal of moralism. Yes. Except less for the purposes of what they call growing the sport. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the NWHL, and I'd love to hear more about that. But it's also this is what was exposed this last week in the NCAA tournaments in San Antonio and Indianapolis, where you know the picture was taken of what the weight room actually looked like for the women. And it was like some dirty yoga mats and a couple of dumbbells. And then the men's tournament, it looks like you just stepped into a professional environment yeah. Like, yeah. as an NBA environment. So, you know, the, 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 but that argument that that's that's pounded mm-hmm. towards women athletes, Yeah, like this is part of being a trailblazer, of growing the sport. They've been having to hear this now for, for decades and decades. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mia Hamm was was the trailblazer. I remember her because every girl my age remembers her and Brandi Chastain, right? Like I, like, I say those names and, like, mental pictures of those moments pop into my brain, right? Like, I'm sorry, but, like, yeah, those trails been blazed. They've been the best in the world since I was a kid. Like, when do they actually get treated like the elite athletes that they are? And, like, especially... In these cases, when we're talking about these locker rooms and stuff, like literally the good equipment exists because the men get to use it. Mm. So we know it's there. Like, why did the Women's World Cup take place on AstroTurf when the men are playing on grass? You have the stadiums. It's not like they don't exist. The only reason to do this is like literally to say, you know, fuck you to the women. Like, it's it's just that simple and annoying that, like, you really just don't actually want to even give them the same stuff like it would cost you nothing they will sell out the grass field state the grass stadiums I promise you because they do regularly like the idea of it is just infuriating like at least when they're arguing that like there isn't as much of an art an audience for like pro women's sports you can like sort of make that argument that there isn't as much money because it's not coming in that's mostly bullshit too but like when the equipment exists and you just don't let them use it, you're literally just being assholes. You know, you literally just believe that women deserve less. And it's yeah. And, but the moralism, I think this is such an interesting point because it is just, yeah, you know, do what you have to do to grow the sport. And this is like women's hockey. One of the reasons that I wanted to write about this is it, it is sort of like women's pro hockey is now where like women's pro soccer was when I was 19. You know, it's just starting to get taken seriously. It's just starting to be an international competition. Um, A couple of countries, the U.S. and Canada, basically, are really good and everybody else is lagging behind, um, which is a reason for more investment. And the women are just like they're looking at what the soccer players have been through and saying, like, we're not going to wait around and play nice we're not going to, it's not going to take us 20 years to finally say enough is enough and refuse to play in shitty conditions. We're going to actually refuse to play in shitty conditions now and say, there is an audience for us. We are this good and pony up the cash. Um, So they've been refusing to play in the NWHL because it, it, you know, was substandard conditions. And so a whole bunch of women organized and said, like, we want the NHL to put some money into it. We can get, we, you know, they've got their own sponsors um, and we're going to play demo games and we want you all to invest in this. And this is after they threatened to strike the world championships and got USA hockey to finally pony up equal money and other things like maternity leave, which Megan Duggan, who I profile in the chapter actually took advantage of. Um And Yeah. So it's, it's a fascinating story um, because they keep, you know, they, they, they kind of don't call it a strike the same way this often. And we could talk about this um, because I know this is one of your favorite topics too. They often don't call sports strikes strikes, but. They've ref- they've refused to play until conditions improve several times in any case whatever they are calling it and um, I love them and also I'm a hockey girl as you can all tell from listening to me so far and from my story about applying for and being rejected for uh, an internship at USA Hockey magazine um, so I loved having a chance to tell that story in some more detail
1: yeah they they don't call them strikes they tend to call them boycotts which yeah. is really interesting um, and it's a political question whether to call it a strike or a boycott but it's also a factual question right you know a strike is when you withdraw your labor a boycott is when you withdraw your consumption power I mean these these are very different things yet they insist on calling them boycotts. I was uh, um, a guest on a Canadian talk show. And the question, this was when the NBA players and then WNBA players and Major League Baseball players all decided to go on strike, a mass strike through sports after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And their questionings to me were, well, why isn't it a boycott? And why don't we call it a boycott? And I gave some answers, you know, kind of like what we talked about, like factually, that's just wrong, et cetera. And I got this really interesting note from somebody. I wish I could remember his name saying that another reason why they call it boycotts is to diminish the labor, Mm -hmm. make it seem like this is something you're doing for fun. Like I'm boycotting a water park. Right. Same thing as, oh, I'm boycotting playing in a basketball game. Yeah. And so it it is a, form. it's another form of linguistic manipulation.
0: Yeah. 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 And like it becomes a way to sort of make it like, I mean, you know, on one hand, like the, the word boycott, we associate with the Montgomery bus boycotts and things like that, which are incredibly powerful political protests. Right. So like, it's not that there's not a radical history of using the boycott. Um, but there is something about the way we have a hard time accepting that what athletes do is work. And part of it is this same sort of mystification that goes on with the arts, which is why, you know, I put the sports chapter in the same section as, as the arts chapter because, you know, I mean, partly because like capitalism has just captured everything we do for fun and made it into big business, but also because like, all of this edifice is built on the backs of amateurism, right? We can't admit that like kids playing football at age 11 is work because then we'd be breaking child labor laws. Um, we can't, the NCAA can't admit that what the athletes are doing is work because then they would have to pay them. Um, (laughs) but like, you know, somewhere along the line and that that's where it gets fuzzy and it gets complicated. I would say it's all work. Um, but, yeah, like the blurriness of those lines is precisely like what makes it hard for people to admit that all of this is work and what makes people say to Colin Kaepernick, well, you're just lucky that you got paid to pay paid to play a game for a living, right?
1: Mm. Um it's hard to look at youth sports as play given that it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Right. You know, and there's this really good book called The Most Expensive Game in Town about the cost of youth sports on working class families. Illusion mm. that uh, this author, Mark Hyman, that he draws is that the expense of these youth sports leagues, which is a generationally new thing, it used to be you played at your public school, but right. the, the, the change of it, it's not that it's pricing out working class families. It's that these working class families are making more sacrifices, mm-hmm. making sure that their kid can play in these leagues. So they get their lottery chance shot. Yeah. Getting out. And that creates also like very weird power imbalances and resentments inside the family too.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have an ex-boyfriend who I'm still friends with, who, um, his daughter is, how old is she now? Goodness. I should know this. I'm a bad friend. Um, Anyway, she's like seven or eight. Right. She's pretty little. And he is teaching her to play golf. And I was teasing him about it because like he was like a little skateboard punk when we were, you know, in high school and dated. And now I'm like, you're teaching your daughter to play golf, you nerd. But like he's like more chance for college scholarships if she plays golf. It's much easier to get like women. And I was just like, damn, she is seven years old you know, and it's just like this, like planning out your kids potential, whatever. Um, you know, and like, I, I rode horses when I was little, which is like a real problem because like that, that is very expensive. And I had to stop because we did not have the money for me to actually, you know, keep doing it at the level that I was getting to. Um, cause we certainly didn't have money to buy me a horse. So, uh, everything, you know, is just dependent on, uh, these variously classed and raced, um, athletic endeavors. I like to joke that, that horse shows taught me a whole lot about class in America. Um, because I realized that like my, like, you know, small business owner parents were nothing compared to like the kids who came in here on the, you know, hundred thousand dollar pony. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like your, your horse costs more than my car. um like several times over Mm. and yeah it was like a wonderful lesson and just like oh that's what rich is Mm. i see um yeah like the, the the pressures and the layers of of just like sort of sanctimonious garbage about it too is just infuriating and like the ncaa is of course the worst at that right
1: and that was my next question for <laughs> the NCAA. I mean, you talk about an institution that depends on moralism, guilt, or even outright repression oh. uh, as a way to keep these athletes in their place yeah, and to keep them from thinking of themselves as workers um, or to try to limit their ability to express themselves as workers. And I mean, the NCAA is such a train wreck <laughs> that... Um, nice. This is someone I know who knows stuff in the NCAA circle. He said that there were people in the NCAA who were um, slightly relieved when there was the expose about the difference between men's and women's conditions, because it was easy to fix and then take credit for. And Mm -hmm. it got people's attention away from the hashtag that was going around. What was it? No NCAA exploitation oh no the NCAA doesn't own me or something like that but there was yeah. a there was a hashtag that was going viral yeah um and uh that's what they're truly worried about yeah this idea of these athletes seeing themselves um as workers what's what's your response in terms of word association when I say NCAA
0: um trash fire honestly <laughs> I like Exploitation, obviously. Um, the thing I keep thinking about is actually this passage in Erin Hatton's wonderful book um, where she talks about, um, she calls it like status coercion, which is, and she's writing about this on it, about workers from prison laborers to workfare, like welfare to work. Um, recipients, and then grad students and college athletes. And all of this, like the, the sort of hyper-exploitation of all of these types of workers depends on this idea that they're not really workers. Mm. But so she's taught, one of the athletes that she talks to talks about like walking into, I forget what it was. The book is right there, but I'm not going to page through it. Um, Walking into the room before some championship and being like weighed and measured and poked at. And this is a black man. And he's just like, this is like what I know about slavery is they put you on the auction block and they poke at you and weigh you and, you know, feel your muscles. And like it was it was so like dehumanizing and there, you know, the argument for all of this, um, is this really paternalistic, like, oh, you know, maybe they'll, they'll get an education while we're at it. Mm -hmm. Um, and the line that I think was from Taylor branch's article about, uh, you know, the lawyer who said, you know, well, maybe we won't uh, make a scholar out of him, but maybe he can be a postal worker instead of a garbage man. When, when Mm -hmm. we get through with him. it's just like this condescending garbage that like, black kids in college aren't actually smart and are only there for sports and they're, but also like denying that they're only there for sports and pretending that you care so much about their education, but like the education that you're saying that you care about is like, well, you know, maybe we'll make them literate. And it's just like, fuck you on every single possible level. That's just so racist and so awful. And like, Then we can talk about just like the body breaking danger of of all of these sports on top of the work that goes into it. Right. You get a serious injury in college. And Dave, I'm sure you have like 20 examples of times when this happened and your career is over. Your scholarship's gone. Yeah. And your life is ruined and you never even got paid for it. Yeah. And that's the risk you take because maybe you get into the NBA or the NFL
1: or get bankrupted by the healthcare costs.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Injury over the course of your life, which is yeah. that's another very common story.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, indeed, very painful. And what you're talking about when people say, well, at least they're getting an education. Yeah. Uh, tons of examples. The one that comes to mind is uh, Michael Bennett, who I did a <laughs> book with with Haymarket. And Michael yes. Bennett's talking about wanting to take sociology classes and being told not to. Yeah. In the football program, because they wanted him in a class that they could basically monitor, first of all,
0: mm-hmm. second
1: of all which would get him to coast through from a grade perspective. There was no caring about what his educational interest might have been.
0: And I mean, the sociology professor might have been a lefty, so they couldn't have the football players anywhere near that.
1: <laughs> it's, you know, the 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 famous story of the Northwestern players who actually tried to form a union. Um, it, it all started with a couple of the players being in a, it was a law labor class. Mm-hmm. So they, left they won't the, make that mistake again. Yeah. And labor law. Yeah, I know. Right. Like, <laughs> and, and, and so yeah, like, I know,
0: and, and Kane Coulter, I think still works for the AFT in Wisconsin. Right. Like he's a, he's a, he's a, right. um, So the thing about that, too, is that, you know, who Joe Biden put in charge as the NLRB general counsel, at least the temporary one until the permanent guy is confirmed, is the person who wrote the decision that the Northwestern football players were workers. Mm. So I'm like crossing my fingers. We get some uh, some some fun things out of the NLRA or NLRB rather.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, the, the NCAA is like the boat in Jaws. (laughs) <laughs> it's taking on water. <laughs> you know, the, the, the players represent the shark and yeah. they are gobbling that. Right yeah. now, they are taking on water from all sides.
0: Yeah, and and like COVID again has just made this all so much more obvious, right? Where like the players are like being forced back in, having to like sign contracts that you know if they get COVID and get sick or die, like it's not the university's fault, even though they might lose their scholarship if they refuse to play.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: it's just, oh my god, it's so infuriating. So no wonder, right, that they've been talking union and and strike and exploitation and all of this stuff more this year than ever.
1: And that they're student athletes, except they're deemed essential workers. During mm-hmm. the pandemic. So it's like you're not workers until we really, really need you, yeah, and yeah. you're still not going to get paid. You're still- it's, it, but you lo- might get COVID, so that's cool. Yeah, lovely system. Um, yeah, you know, we, we do we do have a bunch of questions, but I, okay. I would be very remiss, very remiss, if we didn't have a quick discussion about Tom Brady. Um, so- <laughs> i mean i i my personal belief people call him always the greatest of all time greatest athlete ever i personally believe that he's a you call a white athlete the greatest athlete in history for the simple reason that black athletes have always had to carry this burden when they play they can't not just concentrate on sports but also have to carry the burden of you know, of like what they're going to say, how are they going to use their platform, how they're going to represent themselves, how they're going to hold on to their jobs. Yeah. Being a huge one. Yeah. And not just focus on the sports itself. Your own thoughts on Tom Brady.
0: I mean, so I'm from Boston. Like when Tom Brady like came out of nowhere and they won that first Super Bowl, I was in New Orleans because I went to college in New Orleans um, and I was stoked. I was like, this is amazing. The Patriots are good. What the hell? Um, but yeah, I mean, Tom Brady is just like, And Tom Brady is kind of the opposite of that, right? Like he's such a perfect example for this particular question, because like, he's just like a vacuum of, of like, he says nothing of interest ever. His politics are as far as we know, God awful, but he doesn't even say anything about that. Like he won't even defend Trump. He just sort of, um, and he just, he just shows up to play and he gets to do that in a way that like Marshawn Lynch doesn't actually today. Um, I was searching through my emails for something unrelated and found that video of Richard Sherman. Um, remember however many years ago when he was on, I forget who, and just said like, I'm the best. And then like, just dress this guy down and talk about somebody who's just like, knows exactly what to say. Um, and just like took apart this argument that like, he shouldn't be confident. they were like, oh, well, you're just, you're just like arrogant and all this. And he's like, I'm the best. Also like hear all the bullshit reasons why you're saying that I can't say that it's racist. It's yeah. And man, Richard Sherman. Anyway, um, that, that idea, right. That like Tom Brady, everybody's just gonna be like, Oh, Tom Brady is amazing and wonderful and whatever. And like, but like, let a black player say I'm the best at what I do, which was a fact right um and everybody is jumping all over how arrogant he is and like it's just yeah it's absolutely infuriating Tom Brady's played life on the easy setting and he managed on the easy setting to get to be a very good quarterback who as you said never happened to get injured or sick um and yeah that's that's a thing but like it's, when do we even let a black quarterback be a quarterback? I mean, for first, yeah. <laughs> like when the hell, right?
1: Yeah, 20, Who have we
0: even allowed to get there? I mean, look what they did to Kaepernick. Uh, <laughs> only
1: 2021, 20, you're asking for the moon. But
0: I, I know.
1: <laughs> I'll say it's, um. what you're saying also is what, it's just a reminder of what made Muhammad Ali so electric.
0: Uh huh.
1: Saying 60 years ago, I'm the greatest of all time. I'm the greatest that that, you know, that white sports writers hated it, but it had this electric current. Mm-hmm. Even a lot of the black press didn't like it. They said, oh, no, this is going to hurt us and hurt the image of the race man, as they called it. But you, it actually had an electrical current that went through all the young activists who were uh, at that moment, you know, taking to the streets.
0: <laughs> Amazing. And he was also correct he was entirely correct that he was the best of all time. Uh, And yeah, uh, we have not seen anybody close to that good in the, however many years it's been since the last time he stepped into the ring.
1: It was just something so um, moving to me that um, people in SNCC, when they formed their political party in in Mississippi, their slogan was, we are the greatest. They took the, I am the greatest and put a, put a plural on it. Yeah. Speaks to my labor. One more question for you. So I know people have their questions, but how can I not ask you probably the question you've gotten the most, but I'm just so curious about it. Um, have you ever had a job that you absolutely loved and it didn't love you back and maybe even broke your heart a little bit?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a journalist. <laughs> this job breaks my heart every day. Um, It's exhausting to work this hard constantly. And, you know, I don't have a job per se right now, right? I'm a freelancer, I have a fellowship, which is awesome because it's not a job and they just support my work. But like, I, you know, look around all the time. And I've been joking a lot this year that like everyone's a labor reporter now, which is great because then I don't have to do all the work, but also um, incredibly frustrating because, I've been I, I like I identify a lot with some of these women athletes because I feel like I've been like bashing against a brick friggin wall for the last 10 years to get people to care about the things that I care about. And now when they care about them, they call somebody else to write about it. And it's just like. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, this, this job is incredibly thankless. Um, And I, I, you know, I joke that I wrote this book because it's my life, but it, it, you know, it sits there as a reminder to me that like, Sarah, you get to have a life outside of this. And it's been really weird because like having the book come out in a pandemic when literally like, I don't have much of a life outside of this. I'm living alone right now. Like the only thing going on in most of my days is work and interviews about this book, which are also work. And it's really hard to like separate myself from it at all. So if I get like a nasty comment or somebody writes me an angry email about it or I see a bad review or whatever, like it's that much harder to shake off because I'm just here in it and there's just like nothing outside of work right now. Mm. And so, yeah, it's just like, oh, I I kind of go like, why do I do this to myself again? Um, And then I have a really cool phone interview with somebody and I'm just like, oh, this is why I do what I did. I talked to a Google union member today and it was really great and he was really interesting. So like, (laughs) that's why I keep doing it. Your your, your life is still very good. (laughs) Your life is kind of
1: like a one person play. I mean, you're you're, (laughs) you're selling this book, which your life has become the personification of in, Uh in COVID what a pretzel <laughs> <laughs> indeed indeed okay well um let's get to some questions here by the way the the idea of of feeling like people aren't getting in like because you know sports and politics has exploded too so it's
0: yeah i know, I know I you started a whole uh, thing dave
1: I Love that um and i'll also say like um You know, Rebecca Traester, she writes this great piece about Andrew Cuomo and why he's a crappy politician. And but you've been you've been writing about that. You've been talking about that and public about that for years and years and years.
0: Ten years. Ten years.
1: I'm just saying. Okay. All right. So I have a question from uh, Keith Rosenthal. All right. Question for Sarah. I said, I've I've heard you say work won't love you back, but people will how does search for meaning and work relate to alienated competitive relations that people find in society
0: yeah I mean I think the thing that happens when work becomes love is love becomes work and I mean my obvious example of this is dating apps which are just designed to be like a job interview which is why they're awful um, they're also awful because they're not designed to actually help you find love because if you find love then you're off the app and then Tinder doesn't profit off of you anymore but So, right, when we let capitalist social relations invade every corner of our lives, um, it's that much harder to, like, be a human. And this, you know, this, the way that, like, so many of my friends are people that I know from work, from this god-awful industry that I hate, Um, even though it's full of wonderful people like Dave, who I do love. Um, And you know, it's, it's hard sometimes when that is your life and that is your social circle. And this is like, you know, I sort of need to have friends around me who understand what I do, because otherwise they just kind of look at me like I've got three heads when I'm doing a, you know, phone call with an Amazon worker at, you know, 8 PM on a Sunday, cause that's when they're off. Um, I need people to understand that, but also like, it does narrow so much about your life. And, I think one of the things that makes organizing powerful actually is that it is about connecting with other people and turning that connection to a form of power that the boss can't actually Mm co-opt. And that's the, you know, that's the thing about, um, not just labor organizing, but sort of social movement organizing in general, I don't think, and I wrote about this in my first book, um, I don't think that it's an accident that the social movements of the last 10 years or so, so many of them have focused on on being in public space together with other people. So whether that's like the movements of the squares in Europe and in Occupy, um, in in Tahrir and Gezi in in Egypt and Turkey, um, or the Black Lives Matter protests of the last year where people are camping out, taking space. in the UK right now, where um, comrades are fighting a really draconian policing bill, um, some folks took over a former police station and have occupied it. Um, and people are are coming out and holding vigils and spaces. Um, and this is is that desire for connection, which is amplified even more by the fact that we've all been locked down and sort of you know pulled away from people in the last year. And I'm hoping that. That experience of like the thing we've been denied for most of this last year is like other people, um, that that can actually be a place for us to start really thinking about like how do we make political demands around time and space to connect that is not just like something else we can buy.
1: Yeah. Uh, just apropos of nothing. You made me think I have, I have a, a friend who's um, a younger friend and he's always on the dating apps and whatnot. And he had a meet cute at a bus stop where he and this guy, th- their dogs get got their leashes tangled up. Oh, my God. And he thought the person was totally cute. And and he couldn't. He's this guy. He dates all the time. Yeah. He couldn't even summon up the words. To say hi, like this idea of being confronted with an actual human being that you wanted to talk to. Yeah. And I it made me. He said it to me, kind of laughing, and I, I it made me actually kind of upset.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's just really sad, right? Like, I find it so weird. Like, I, I, you know, I my dog died a couple of months ago, so I'm not out walking the dog anymore. But, um, like once we had to like mask up you know, and I would be out walking the dog and I would like smile at the neighbors and then realize like, you can't see me cause I got a mask on. And you know, there's, a, there's that, like, I feel like I've, I've started smiling much more intensely so you can see like the eye smile. Um, but yeah, like the, the way that like, you know, we're sort of used to moving through the city with headphones on and our heads down. And what if we didn't? Right. Um, yeah, that's just,
1: wow. What if we didn't, <laughs> Um, Gaia Croston has a terrific question. Um, she said, can, can y'all talk about the nonprofit industrial complex?
0: Oh, we can. <laughs> yes. I have a whole chapter in this book on that. And I have so many feelings, um, because yeah, like it's, it's built on people's very real desire to do something meaningful, change the world, um, have a job that feels real and like it matters. And like literally to be not in the pursuit of profit, right? Like when we talk about nonprofits, um, that's, that's appealing. And yet it replicates so many of the worst working practices and, and sort of just like we were talking about with teachers and with athletes, like you're lucky to be here. Um, if we give you anything then it's going to hurt the members, clients, patients, whoever it is that we are supposedly serving. Um, you know, when I was, um, the, the worker that I profile for that chapter worked at Planned Parenthood, um, the Rocky Mountains affiliate and was part of a union drive there. And she said that like the stuff they were told was like, you know you don't have the right attitude for this, and you know you you don't do this kind of work for the money. And she's like, "Well, yeah, but like you're paying me twelve bucks an hour to like walk through a sea of of you know anti-abortion protesters every time I come to work. And I'm exhausted at the end of the week because this job is really stressful, and you're paying me twelve bucks an hour in change, and we don't have, you know, Planned Parenthood employees did not, and I think most of them still do not have paid family leave. Wow. What the hell guys, come on, you know? Um, yeah. And so we actually, and it's not an accident that like one of the unions that has organized the most new bargaining units in the last year is a nonprofit professional employees union and also other unions that, you know, organize nonprofit workers. Um, because yeah, this is, this is, you know, and it's also it's bad for the movement to not have sustainable labor practices to be built on the idea that you can just sort of churn through an endless supply of idealistic young college grads. I mean, what does that sound like? It sounds like teacher friggin' America. Mm hmm. It, it
1: can also create movement problems if people are representing these nonprofits in radical spaces. Mm-hmm. And even if a person has got terrific politics, they're told by whoever is overseeing them that they need to either pull out their work or move it in a certain direction. And it becomes, what, what did Arundhati Roy call it? The shock absorbers of revolution, she called mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And right. The funding problems of their legion. And like, you know, we saw this with um, really poignantly with Black Lives Matter, like the first round of Black Lives Matter, when like Ferguson um, and, you know, funders poured money into organizations in Ferguson for like a year or two. Right. And then the money fades, and you've sort of created this culture of like all of the activists need to brand themselves and sort of clawing for recognition and money because recognition brings money. And that means you can keep doing your work. And then, you know, the funders get bored because funders get bored and they move on to something else. And then this year, there's another round of Black Lives Matter protesters, and the funders once again are like, oh, we should care about that again. Um, and it's just incredibly infuriating to me that that's just how it. Um, Yeah, it it keeps happening because like, I don't know, what do they think they solved racism with like the first round of funding? Um, We ended white supremacy, guys, it's great. Oh, whoops, I guess we didn't. Yeah, no, we got a lot of work to do to do that.
1: Feels like that dovetails with your book too, when you have corporations try to brand themselves as anti-racist and Mm -hmm. put forward Black Lives Matter statements while they're also trying to sell you at the same time, you know, say Nike's, for example. And it becomes like another, just yet another form of, of emotional button pressing.
0: Yeah, I mean, right? Nike giving Colin Kaepernick a, a sponsorship was like, ooh, I have a lot of feelings about this.
1: Yeah, it's and it, it's just something. I just think the themes in your book are, are are both you know very much of our moment, but also very prescient um, for what we're going to see even more of in the years to come. Um, Katie Caldwell. This is the question. Let's see. Uh, Organizational psychologists like Adam Grant are shifting away from following your passion slash love to making it about care. Do you see this shift as a means to expand care economy infrastructure?
0: I mean, care, passion, love, all of these things are intertwined, right? There's still sort of emotional appeals that aren't... um, going to, you know, they're not going to change how we materially treat these workers because we we don't value care any more than we value passion in this, this society. In fact, we probably value it less um, because passion can be a thing that men do and caring is a thing that women do. So we definitely don't value that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, until we actually like really, really change the way we value care in this,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: screwed up society, which you basically can't do under capitalism, spoiler alert, um, and you definitely can't do under patriarchy, um, we are going to just circle back around to these same issues of like, oh, well, you know, if you cared, you would do X, Y, Z. And no, the answer sometimes has to be no. Like I also, not to bring up self-care, which is its own minefield, but like yeah, sometimes we have to say no. And sometimes we have to think about like a society that cares about people is also one that gives us time off.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and um, I, I don't think this is, I don't know if this is what Katie's asking, but her question or their question um, also makes me think about this idea that can we use this rhetoric about work needing to be equated with love? and somehow use that for progressive ends like saying okay if work is about love then shouldn't we be supporting teachers to the nth degree since they um love their students shouldn't we be like the way katie put it was expanding the care economy like couldn't we make sure that there's quality health care for everybody but particularly for seniors and can that be a part of or or is it the case that, you know, you can't tear down the master's house with the master's tools?
0: Well, I just kind of think that there are always going to there's always going to be as, you know, we live in a society. There's always going to be work that isn't really very easy to love. Like we need the garbage picked up.
1: Mm-hmm. Picking
0: up garbage isn't fun. I've had jobs where it was part of my job. I, you know, my first job ever was clean up crew at a big outdoor concert hall in Massachusetts. Like picking up other people's garbage and cleaning up their vomit is not fun. The cool thing about that job, of course, was we got free concert tickets. So that was why I did it when I was 14. But like, we still need to improve the working conditions for those jobs too. And so if we sort of say like, oh, we should value these jobs because these people care so much, I worry that that also becomes a way to devalue other kinds of work. Um, So well, the garbage collectors don't care that much about the garbage that they pick up, so therefore we shouldn't pay them much. when actually, like, we actually need to have a framework for valuing labor and people's time that is based on, like, valuing that everybody's time is important
1: mm-hmm.
0: and not based on, on creating sort of a hierarchy of importance of work. Mm. Although, like, just in general, sanitation workers should probably be paid, like, five times what they're paid now because that job is hard and it's dangerous as hell.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We could make it less dangerous, too. That's also a thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. This 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 next question is is so good. I wanted to ask it, even on the off chance that we would lose power or connectivity. And I want to
0: make sure. (laughs) Does it involve Jeff Bezos?
1: Yes. Um, (laughs) So this is the question. Uh, And XT—that's just the name I have on it. But the question is, what helps guard against the emotional manipulation at our jobs? Is resilience a BS concept in this world? What would a good workplace look and feel like?
0: I mean, resilience is an interesting concept. Certainly, um, I think, yeah, in the workplace, it I feel like resilience just gets used to like tell you to you know suck it up and work harder. What would a good workplace look like? I mean, so. William Morris wrote about um, the three things that make work pleasurable, and it's um, hope of rest. So, you know, time off. This is the number one thing. Um, Your work is much more pleasurable when you only have to do it for a limited period of time. Um, Two was hope of product. So, essentially, right, an end to alienated labor that if you are producing something, you actually get the control over what you produce rather than your boss taking it away to profit off of it. And three was hope of pleasure in the work itself. And Mm -hmm. I really like these. Um, Yesterday was William Morris's birthday Um, because when we think about it, like it is possible to sort of apply these even to doing like that, you know, job where I was picking up garbage, like, okay, it mostly sucked. But when you, you know, you would go out in the morning and you would be separated off and like two or three of you would go clean the bathroom and you would, you you would tell jokes and, you know, goof off and have a good time with each other because we mostly got along and that made it not suck so bad. Right. Mm. And, you know, even though you were, cleaning up bathrooms after a, you know, Jimmy Buffett concert, which like, let me tell you, the Jimmy Buffett fans, they're, they, they were the messiest, like the Nine Inch Nails concert, goths were very clean. (laughs) The Jimmy Buffett fans who were like, left the place looking like a, you know, circus had run through it. So, you know, there, there are ways in other words to sort of give people more autonomy and freedom and, you know, allow people to like talk and you know, enjoy themselves a little bit while you're doing, even if you're doing sort of monotonous work, Um, safety, things like that. And yeah, I mean, the the question about alienated labor is really the tough one, actually, because that, again, you sort of can't deal with that while still living under capitalism.
1: Uh, Jessica Lawless, uh, and apparently there's several questions about higher ed.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Jessica Lawless asks, can we take higher ed to task like sports? There's yes. an explicit relationship between the appeal to emotional labor and quote unquote loving one's job, while also a relationship between love and fear
0: mm-hmm. when it
1: comes to organizing and fighting back.
0: Yeah, I mean, the relationship between love and fear is so intense. That book that I was talking about, um, Aaron Hatton's book, Oh my God, Why Am I blank? Coerced is the name of the book. Um, Erin is a sociologist, and she's awesome. She also wrote a great book on the temp economy. Um, so, the the way that um relationships, particularly among grad students can be really coercive Um, because like you have an advisor who is, she explicitly studied grad students in the sciences where a lot of the time, the things that they were working on were like, not only research that was going to be published in a journal, but like research that was probably going to make somebody a lot of money. Like, I don't know how many grad students worked on the COVID vaccines, but probably a lot of them. Um, So their advisors would do things like keep them on longer, like not let them finish and defend their dissertations because they were doing such good work in the lab that the advisor was getting, speaking of alienated labor, um, getting benefits out of having them there, Um, all of this. And like, there were, you know, a couple of people that she interviewed that had explicitly sort of left their advisors and basically had to leave the entire field because that advisor, um, without a letter of recommendation from your advisor, you're screwed. And yeah, so the like the intense amount of control in these personal relationships is like the first thing I think of when you say love and fear about higher ed. Um, and then just in general, um, last week on my podcast, um, Michelle and I interviewed Joe Grady, who is the president of, or the, um, general secretary of the university and college union in the UK. Um, and they are in the middle of like 20 different fights because, you know, higher ed right now is going through all of the same garbage around reopening in person that, that, um, you know, K-12 teachers are. And also, like, universities are all looking to cut budgets and use COVID as an excuse to get rid of troublemakers. And so there have been campaigns around, like, you know, I know anybody on this call is going to be really surprised to learn left-wing professors who are threatened with losing their jobs for being too critical, fun things like that. Um, You know, the, the working conditions in higher ed are one of the easiest places to sort of point to in terms of like degradation of the professions over the last 30, 40 years. Um, you know, Margaret Thatcher eliminated tenure entirely in the UK. In the US, something like 74% of undergrad classes are being taught by adjuncts, grad students, and otherwise contingent faculty. Um the whole thing is a nightmare and it's all just getting more expensive at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's got to crap load of debt that, you know, Joe Biden still won't forgive, even though he could. And meanwhile, the, you know, the teachers that are doing the teaching of these expensive educations are in worse working conditions. And that probably doesn't make their teaching actually, you know, easier or better. Um, but I'm sure that they're still working their butts off to do it well. And, you know, the, the adjunct is just like the epitome of this, like, mm-hmm. hope labor. I haven't talked about hope labor that much on this call yet, Of, of um, which is a concept from communication scholars, Kathleen Kuhn and Thomas Corrigan, of the work that we do in the hopes of getting like the good job later. So like, you know, college athletes, high school athletes, middle school athletes are doing hope labor, but so are adjuncts who are hoping to maybe get that tenure track job and grad students, obviously. Um, So higher ed is a big old mess, um, but there is at least some militancy going on there too. And, you know, one of the things about, again, Joe Biden putting, you know, progressive people in charge of the NLRB is that while we probably won't get the PRO Act through Congress, at least some of these decisions made by the Trump board that grad students aren't workers and things like that will probably get reversed. So um, there's a little hope.
1: Yeah. Um, a follow up question from Gaia. Uh, she said, how do folks even counter the idea that advocating for workers' rights is advocating against who they serve, like patients, clients, students, communities, yeah. especially when folks are rattled about job security.
0: Yeah, I mean, so we talked about this a little bit around the teacher's question and the way that um, Chicago teachers and others have, you know, made like our working conditions or our students' learning conditions into a real catchphrase that spread across um you know, not just K through 12, but also higher ed. And right. The point is that, like, again, like adjunct professors who are worried about their ability to pay their rent are probably not doing as great a job of teaching as they could if they were secure and tenured and made enough money to pay rent in New York City or wherever it is they happen to live. The adjunct that I profile in the book is from New York City, um, which I kind of wanted to do because New York adjuncts do so much crazy college hopping because there are so many schools. So Kate had taught in um, all all of the boroughs except for Staten Island and also on Long Island and in New Jersey in her time as an adjunct. So. This is also true, though, the the our working conditions are are whatever's X conditions of nurses who we've seen a whole lot of nurses strikes in the last year that all sort of fall right below the BLS threshold for calculating a major strike. So nurses in in Massachusetts at St. Vincent's Hospital, I believe, are still on strike. I didn't see anything about it being ended today, so I'm going to assume they're still on strike um, and. Yeah, and they are often striking over working conditions that are explicitly about patient care. So nurses are always making demands around staff ratios. So fewer patients per nurse means the nurse can give better care to each patient. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the ways that explicitly, you know, nurses unions have really countered this demand is to say, like, we are striking because that is the best way that we can have the power to ensure we can do our jobs right. Do our jobs safely, which PPE has been like second to staffing ratios in the last year, Um, certainly. And this is also true in nonprofits, right? It's also true in journalism. And my job would be a lot better if I, you know, I can do a better job telling a story if I am paid properly and have the time and the assistance and a good editor. Bless my good editors. I've got several um, to do that. And if I have to crank out a story, For 200 bucks, that means I have to basically do it in half a day in order to keep up the rate of production that I need to pay my bills. Um, I am not going to do as good a job at that. Mm. So, you know, and I think this is true of nonprofits. I think it's true of anything. Like, frankly, I think the labor movement needs to do better by its paid organizers because sometimes they are not working in the conditions that they are demanding for their, you know, members. Like... Yeah, I just I think it's fundamentally not true that these interests are actually divided. And the people who you have a fundamentally antagonistic relationship with are the bosses, not your clients, members, students, patients, any other relationship that I can think of that I didn't name there.
1: Uh, Gianna has a question that relates to something you just uh, referenced. Can you talk more about organizing within journalism? Yes. And then this and. That That, to me is a great question unto itself, but then Gianna files it up with, and or about the way the concept of objectivity places restrictions on the way journalists can live their lives, especially those who are marginalized.
0: Yeah. So this past week after the shooting in Atlanta, I saw some people um talking about, the fact that reporters who spoke Korean and were familiar with Atlanta were actually being told that they were not objective and couldn't cover the story. So instead they were sending in white people who don't speak the friggin' language because that's smart. Um, I mean, that's like an obviously ludicrous example, but it happened because if you have any characteristic that isn't being a white guy, sorry, Dave, um, you are assumed to not be objective about that set of things. So... That is just a whole bunch of garbage. And like, honestly, my friend Kai Wright, who is a wonderful journalist, is, is now at um, WNYC. And he talks about this as actually being something that's slowly changing a little bit. Right. Because I know Kai for, through the nation, just where I know Dave, um, where, you know, we work at an explicitly left leaning and you know the nation is a big tent but it is left of center at the very least and sometimes you know does issues on socialism and publishes people like us um and you know the um the fact that kai was hired at wnyc um is a sign that like public radio at least is is at least a little bit letting go of some of these really burned out cliches about objectivity because like the reality is when we're talking about this is actually something that came up today with the, the Google union worker that I was talking to, um, because one of the big demands in tech is also we want diversity and then we want those diverse hires to be allowed to speak because the point of diversity isn't just so that when you look around the room, there are you know proportionally representative numbers of black and Asian and Latino and Jewish people. But it's so that their opinion, their, their experiences and their knowledge shape your coverage, right? So like I'm a labor beat reporter. What that means in practice is that I know a whole bunch of random factoids that y'all have just been listening to me spill out for the last however long. Um, That is a set of Expertise and skills that I bring to the job. I'm also a woman, which means I've dealt with the last 40 years of being sexually harassed all the time. That's just, you know, that's something I know about as a labor beat reporter, and also something from walking through the world with this body. Um, And that doesn't make me unqualified to write stories about sexually sexual harassment. In fact, it makes me much better at it because I know how it works. Um, Because I, too, have had to organize to get a sexual harassing boss fired. Um, And this is actually really interesting in relation to journalism organizing also, because what's happened as there has been a wave of unionization at this, you know, the sort of digital publications, um, you know, places like Gawker and Vice, um, but also like Slate and the New Yorker and others who are in the middle of um, fights right now is that now you've got a whole bunch of people who have firsthand experience with like what right to work actually means because like at Slate they fought getting that imposed on them in the contract, which basically, you know, what right to work is, is um well, it's not banning the union. But it it essentially is um nobody has to pay to um, pay fees to the union in order to be represented by it. So this is often right to work. It just gets glossed as like, you just can't have a union, which is not true. There are incredibly strong unions and right to work states. Um, the culinary union in Las Vegas is just one example. But now all of the people who have been through that fight at Slate, which was essentially a way for management to help defund the union by ensuring that it wouldn't have that many people paying into it and not that many people would wanna support it. Yeah. Now they all know that because they've been through that. Does that make them less objective about a labor story or does that just mean they have new knowledge and experience that they bring to bear? And like also just related to the last question about, you know, your patients, clients, whatever. They're, they benefit from me having good working conditions. Mm-hmm. They benefit from a whole number of things that happen if I have good working conditions. If I have health insurance, then I'm less worried about getting in the car and going to cover something during a pandemic. Whereas right now I have crappy health insurance off the exchange that has an $8,000 deductible. So I've been real careful this year because I can't afford to get sick. And what a year
1: to be that, to be worried about that too. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. So, you know, things like that are are like absolutely, again, like my job security, would that I had it, um, would make me better at my job. And that happens to be writing about labor.
1: Well, that was a, such a good answer to that. <laughs>
0: my
1: humble opinion and my just just sitting here listening to you. But we have a couple more questions. You've been so generous with your time. I don't see how anybody could not purchase this book after this conversation. Um, I, I've gotten copies for friends. I, I recommend uh-huh. that, particularly people who, uh, frankly, are teachers. I mean, that, that's where I've been funneling this book um but i have two two more questions here jessica lawless um no not Jessica lawless i asked jessica lawless's question i'm so sorry uh rachel o'donnell how does the you you sort of touched on this you did touch on this but i I think you probably have more to say about it rachel o'donnell asks how does the feminization of certain industries fit in here especially considering your focus on domestic life and household labor
0: yeah, I mean, so the feminization of the workforce is one of the things that brought us the labor of love, right? Mm-hmm. And um I I take to task a little bit like second wave feminism for this because the the sort of Betty Friedan argument of like women are wasted being housewives so we should get careers. Um that posits that getting a career is going to be fun, exciting, fulfilling, meaningful um in a way that being at home was not. And you know, at the same time as that was happening, there was the welfare rights movement and wages for housework saying that, like, actually, we also need to value the work that's going on in the home and treat that as as also meaningful. Because if we don't surprise, it's going to creep into the rest of the paid economy and everybody is going to be in the same crappy conditions as paid domestic workers who were left out of labor law because um, racist Southern Democrats didn't want to give black well, Black women in domestic work and Black men in farm work, real wages and working conditions. So um, always got to talk about racism, sexism, because they shape everybody's experience of the workforce, whether or not you are a racialized person or a person who presents as female or gender nonconforming. If you allow people to carve out a certain type of work as less valuable, not needing to be paid, not deserving of protections, those conditions creep and they get everywhere. And right now, like look at Uber, who's trying to, you know, take prop 22 across the country and cut deals with whoever in order to make it happen. Um, you don't, want to accept carve outs for any type of work so where has assuming that women's work in the home wasn't really valuable work and therefore didn't deserve a wage gotten us it's gotten us with home health care which is the fastest growing job in this country um, paid just about minimum wage and carved out of all sorts of things by the supreme court and um state law and any number of other things. So, you know, yeah, we have to actually, as I say, if I can get people to care for no other reason about women's work, it is that women's working conditions will not stay on women.
1: Mm. Wow. And then I think that, 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 that's such a profound point because also solidarity then becomes a pipe dream. So it affects everybody's workplace and everybody's working conditions.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, to accept oppression.
0: Right. To accept, right. Accept immigrant workers being treated like crap. Well, guess what? It's gonna come for you.
1: Yeah. Um, last question from the audience. And then I have one last question. All right. And then you get a closing statement. <laughs> uh, the the 3D Kate asks, please talk about professional artists, the most unregulated industry out there.
0: Indeed. should we
1: unionize?
0: Yes. I mean, I think everyone should unionize. That's just like a baseline. My answer to everything is organize your workplace. Um, I do have a chapter about professional artists. It leads off the second half of the book because I think the way that we talk about art is has screwed up the way we think about like any field that can possibly be classed as creative. So the way that we talk about computer programmers is a lot related to the way we talk about artists and the art world is I like I spent probably the most time researching and working on that chapter actually because um the I had to start off with with unpaid domestic work and but I had read a lot about that and I'd written a lot about that before and I'd really formulated my thoughts on this whereas the art stuff like selling this book gave me an excuse to just go down real deep rabbit holes around art and so I'm obsessed with like periods of time in art history where artists did think about this as organizing um and so like the Mexican muralists who everybody knows were communists right but like mm-hmm. maybe doesn't know that like they organized unions of of art workers and conceptualized doing like massive mural projects as collective projects that should be treated as such that were sort of about by and for the workers. Um, and I, I love that even though Diego Rivera was kind of a jerk, um, and Sikiros tried to kill Trotsky. So, you know, they weren't perfect, but, but politically, um, it was really fascinating. The history of, um, Speaking of communists, and speaking of people who were inspired by the Mexican muralists, um, the artists' union around the Great Depression—that was the impetus for the, um, WPA's arts programs because artists organized and demanded like, Hey, and this is a great timing for this. Cause we're about to have a, you know, we're in a great depression again. And also like artists and musicians and performers of all types have really been screwed by the last year. Um, this is, is so intense. I was just reading a story the other day about, um, uh, the Met opera workers, the stagehands who are locked out. And, um, yeah, so, workers in the arts reading up on what happened during the new deal would be a great time right now because like, it would be a great time to get some federal arts funding Yeah, and it would be a great time to, um, expand that. So my favorite thing about the new deal arts programs is actually, I mean, everybody knows, right, I assume most people know that, like, they paid for, you know, artists to make murals and paintings and photographs and do this in, you know, community spaces and all of that. But they also opened, like, community art centers. So they also paid artists to teach classes to everybody. And I think that's actually, like, the most radical part of this whole thing was, was actually, like using this as a time to expand the arts to more people rather than like, okay, okay, we need to keep some artists going. So we'll give them some money. It was actually like, okay, this is a time where we can like build an art center in every community so that every kid can come learn how to paint. And everybody who wants to come, you know, paint for a couple hours or sculpt or whatever they might want to learn to do can learn to do that. And we can all actually have, um, Access to this, whether or not we are going to be professional artists, which I think is amazing. And I think we need that. Um, and then the artist that I profile for that chapter, um, her name is Kate O'Shea, and she is from Ireland, and I love her dearly. And um, she took me on a whirlwind tour of the Irish arts scene last winter, just before COVID. Um, and so I met all of her comrades that she organizes with in all these variety of ways, and they were trying to start an artists union. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually thinking about how to organize that, and so um, Kate O'Shea, Carrie Guinan, um, and a whole bunch of other people that you can read about more in the book, but I love them, and yeah, because like the arts is just such a endlessly fascinating, fascinating place full of mystified labor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why I started reading William Morris too, who who wrote more about the labor of art than William Morris. Got to give
1: a shout out to the movie The Cradle Will Rock.
0: Right yes,
1: the 1930s artists and, and all of that good stuff. Wow. Well, Sarah Jaffe, this has been fantastic. I've learned so much from this and I read the book. <laughs> you blurbed the book. I blurbed the book proudly. That was a happy day to even get the ask because oh. I, I knew it would be good. I knew it. And it did not disappoint. I, I, I do have to um, ask you though, um, People who write for a living, you know, music tends to be a big part of what they do, whether it's music while they're working or music to decompress. It's always in there somewhere. What music got you through writing this book?
0: So I actually made a playlist because my favorite thing to do is, um, procrastinate by making Spotify playlists. Um, So I will share that on Twitter afterwards. But I had a whole bunch of songs. But actually, the book, um, so it's not in there because the estate of George Michael wanted too much money. And I like to think that if Comrade George was still alive, he would have let me um, use an excerpt from Wham Rap, which is a song about quitting your job because it sucks and going on the dole. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I listened to a lot of George Michael, um, who was a communist and, um, wham rap is not the only good anti-work song that George Michael wrote, but, um, yeah. So I, I feel like I should leave that with, with comrade George.
1: Oh man. It, the book is called work. Won't love you back. Uh, any last thoughts, Sarah, anything else you want to say?
0: I, yeah, um, unionize your job. (laughs) If you have a job, unionize it even if you don't. You can join the Freelance Solidarity Project if you're a freelance writer like me.
1: Right on. And um, shout out, of course, to Haymarket Books for putting this together. Thank yes. you, McDonald. Thank you, Dana Blanchard. Thank you uh, to, to everybody who's been a part of putting together the closed captioning, everything that we've been able to do to make sure that this is as welcoming a space as possible. Um, Sarah, thank you so much.
0: Thank you for all of your work that inspired me to write about sports.
1: We are going to be looking at your Twitter feed for this Spotify. Oh playlist.
0: Yeah. play. Yeah, post it right now.
1: All right. I'm excited. Uh, George, Mike, I know Wham Rap, I'm trying to come up with some, but I'm I'm, I'm falling short. But God bless him, Andrew Ridgely, and the entire communist brigade that was Wham. Yep. So everybody out there watching, thank you so much for joining us. We are out of here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast, and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.